When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Athletic. I mean, it sounds daft, but actually as they go down to 10 and then 9, it, do you feel the pressure growing in a way? Is it quite difficult playing against 9 and picking maybe the timing for your runs? Uh, obviously, it's easier playing against 9 men. Welcome to the Athletic Football Tactics podcast. I'm today's referee, Ali Maxwell, the man in the middle. And our topic, the tactics of being down to 10 men or even nine men, if indeed that were ever to happen. What changes do you need to make to react to the numerical disadvantage? And should an extraordinarily high line be part of that tactical plan? You'll find out as I pick the brains of our panel, which contains... Most likely to be sent off for two bookable offences, coming from over-enthusiastic pressing. Liam Tharn. Hello. Mark Carey, you know the data behind when it's right or wrong to do a dogzo, to purposefully take one for the team and bring down a player through on goal. I'll take that. Because that is an interesting analytical debate, isn't it? And I'm sure the numbers have been crunched somewhere. As in, there are times, late on in a game, defending a one-goal lead, where if a player's through on goal... Ideally outside the box, bring them down. Yeah, got to play the percentages. Gary Neal at Wembley. But five minutes in at nil-nil, possibly don't do that. Definitely don't do that, (laughs) I would say. There you go. Uh, And finally, Michael Cox, serious foul play. Hi, Michael. (laughs) (laughs) Hi, Ali. Thank you for that. Anyone that's seen any of your Twitter spats over the years will know (laughs) that you do occasionally cross the excessive force or brutality threshold. Well, I went to a live event with Jake Humphrey last night. You know, he blocked me on Twitter a few years ago. So. <laughs> Frosty handshake? Was it Tevez and Wayne Bridge vibe? No, I was I was up in the gods for this. He was doing a live show with Serena Wiegmann. Ah. Hence why I was there for the uh, for the panellists. There you go. Oh, Romero's on the ground and he's just kicked the back of Colwell. You can see it in the distance there. VAR having suggested that it was petulance, not violence. On Monday night, Tottenham played Chelsea. It's one of the most memorable Premier League matches of all time, I think. And we all know the details broadly. Spurs went down to 10 men on 33 minutes, losing a centre-back, Romero. They went down to nine men on 55 minutes, losing a full-back, Udogi. Uh, Ange Postacoglu insisted that his team continue to defend with a defensive line on the halfway line, despite not being able to disrupt Chelsea's build-up. And for a while, it sort of worked until three Chelsea goals led to a 4 one win. I got some questions. Guys, why did Postacoglu do this? What are the benefits to trying to maintain that high line? What are the risks? Was it foolish? I didn't think it was mad. I mean, the down to nine men, the chances are they're going to lose. I think you've, you've got to be realistic about it. You can play with nine men and you can play really deep and pragmatic and, and still get beaten 4-1. I don't think that's beyond the realms of possibility at all. And I don't think it was just about that game. I think it was more about the style of what he's trying to impose. The fact that, you know, 
outsiders can laugh at it or whatever. But the fact that the Tottenham fans were like applauding them after the third goal or the fourth goal, I think that that does mean something going forward. You know, it's still a very early point in the project. And yeah, if you're talking solely about that game, about the percentages, I'm not sure it was the right way to play. But I do think it will have benefits going forward. You can't come in with a philosophy and then chop and change. You have to be relatively consistent. And even though this was an extreme example, I kind of get it. It, it you know, it, it was it was setting out what they're all about. And even though they got done a few times in behind and Chelsea didn't play the situation very well, they only locked, they only considered the third goal eighty four minutes something like that. They could have equalised in yeah. stoppage time with that Son chance. So yeah, it just goes have... to show you that yeah, if you look at the scoreline alone and the the main points, it's very different from what actually happened. I yeah, you could argue it. that the more questionable piece of performance was the way Chelsea defended set pieces against nine men and almost conceded two goals at 2-1 on two occasions. Yeah, I mean, if we're being critical of Tottenham, I don't think it's really worth being critical of what happened after they got two players sent off. I think it's worth being critical of how they went from being 1-0 up, at one point we thought 2-0 up, and then suddenly they, they completely lost control of the game. That, the second end of the first half and the start of the second half was where the problems are, obviously, with nine men, the way they played was more eye-catching, more noticeable. But to a certain extent, it didn't really matter, you know, because whatever way they play, you're still two players inferior. There's a great piece on uh, the analyst website that actually includes some data in there about the 73 occasions in Premier League history where a team has had two or more red cards. Uh, there's only ever been two wins by the team that have received at least two red cards, 13 draws and 58 losses. So as Michael said, the, the chance of you coming out with a result are really quite slim. I think up to put it at sort of around twenty percent. So it's it's really hard to do. And I think yeah, I think I drew issue with the idea of them sort of having a, a moral victory from this. I'm like I don't think you necessarily morally won it, won anything from it. But I can agree with the point that yeah, if you want to instill a way of playing, then you need to try and do that as consistently as possible. Um, and I also think it ties into the fact that, and we spoke about something uh, a lot on this pod that. They were really quite turgid at the end under Conte and really quite defensively passive. That that Milan game, the second leg in the, in the Champions League, sticks to mind where they were behind in the tie at halftime in the second leg at home and they were in a mid-block on the halfway line and Harry Kane was shuttling left and right. They lacked intensity, they lacked pressure. And having spoken to some Spurs fans about it, they were saying that they were more prepared to lose this way than they would have been to sort of sit off and be pragmatic and defensive and, and deep because that's what they want now. So I guess it comes down to how you are prepared to or how you want to win, lose or draw a game. I think on the one hand, it is consistent to Ange Postacoglu's principles. And we did an episode on that, that that could maybe be his downfall across the course of a season. Okay, this example aside, when he's got 11 men. But the reason that I thought it was maybe a bit too stubborn was because Ange Postacoglu likes his players from the front to, to press and pe press strongly. And if you're not able to do that because you don't have the personnel to do it, then all you end up doing is just being caught between a rock and a hard place. And it, it's suicide ball because you press the player on the ball and, that's, and then you have the high line and that stops you from getting the ball played over the top. But if you're not able to press that ball in the first place, then that ball goes over the top and you're doing neither one nor the other. So that's where I thought for me it was, it was slightly um, stubborn. There is also a fair point, and Michael mentioned this about sort of in terms of how you play the game, that this is a Chelsea team that have really struggled against low blocks, that Pochettino has said as much himself this season. They've they've lost to West Ham, to Villa, uh, to Forest, to Brentford, all of whom either play primarily or at times would sit deep and, and be prepared to defend the area. So, yeah, there's a way that you could say, look, if you'd have sort of sat off them a lot more and it, it gave ample opportunity, and I completely agree that I thought Chelsea actually played 
they were very rushed in how they sort of attacked against it. They were just seemingly, there wasn't really a lot of coordination to it. It wasn't sort of one run a go, try and pin the line back, which City do is a really good way of sort of pinning a team, get them a bit deeper. Then the actual runner goes for the pass. It was like Kukurea was just taking off and then hmm. Jackson was taking off. I thought Kukurea's was... runs were among the, the most <laughs> yeah, deadly yeah. of the lot. And then he should have squared it, of course, when he did get in that in behind that one time. Uh, I thought uh, Nicholas Jackson's offside position was actually quite good because he was one that was saying, let me sort of stay and Son does it really well, actually, for, for Spurs. And then wait, when you do then get the run in behind, okay, that's why you can then score the same goal twice because you're suddenly alive and you can be brought back, back on side. I think when you do get games like this where there's two very, very aggressive high lines and the whole game is in 25 yards or so in the centre of the pitch, it often is the fullbacks who time their runs the best because they can see the picture and they've got time to get up to full speed before you know, not getting caught offside, which I think was Jackson's problem on a couple of occasions. So, yeah, I think the fullbacks often in those situations really crucial. And of course, for them, they're used to having to make kind of 40, 50 yard runs to get in behind the opposition. So when it's only 20 yards, they kind of their eyes light up. Feels like there's a sort of basball extent to the decision to play like that as well, Michael. You know, you touched on it more about mentality, philosophy, those sorts of words, but also buy in primarily from the players, but also it can't hurt if the fans are also uh, happy for you to play that way, sacrificing one game, but for the greater good. Yeah, I think it's, to a certain extent, I think it's about players not being afraid to make mistakes and just understanding that mistakes are part of the part of the process if you're going to play this kind of really aggressive system. So for me, there was no sign the players were a little bit uncomfortable with what they were doing. I think you have to give you know, Postacoglu credit for that. They were completely committed to it. And even though it was very high risk and they got done a couple of times, I kind of get it. I think it was uh, an understandable approach. I thought even at 11 v 11, the, the high lines going both ways were, were quite a problem, actually, that both teams sort of struggled or at least were playing into um, the opponent's hands because they had good runners from wide areas and they could get in behind well. Um, there's that goal that's on uh, that would put them to up and Sterling got in behind or was offside a couple of times getting in. So it, it definitely, I don't think it's the sort of game plan that, okay, it became more extreme, but I think 11 v 11, that would have still continued throughout the game. And I think there was even more sort of pronounced when, I think when just after Doggy gets sent off that Pochettino straight away brings on Mudrick and I thought, okay, he sensed here's his chance to, who are my best sort of runners in behind and who are the profiles now I need to sort of win this game. But there's definitely a, a panic, I think, to sort of almost want to overload the, the forward line and just constantly put tons of forwards on. But you need the right profiles of people getting in, the right passes. And I think part of the reason Chelsea, or part of the reflection that they didn't play it well was how many chances they gave up and how many times actually when they did lose it, they didn't counter press fantastically. The high press was okay but it was almost weird watching Chelsea try to press because they almost go oh we don't expect anyone to play out against us with a two-player disadvantage and then go okay do we go man for man where do we make the overloads how do we use our extra players well my dream every week on this pod is to plant a seed using something topical and watch it grow into further conversation flowery conversation uh, that's less topical and, and more sort of tactical and technical and broad and we got two out of that seed, uh, set aside sendings off, red cards for a moment. Let's talk about high defensive lines. Uh, Michael, you're someone who's got a, a good perspective over Premier League history as a whole. Uh, right now, how high are defensive lines across the board compared to previous eras in the Premier League? It's a difficult question. I mean, I think compared to kind of 15 years ago or so, then, yeah, it's very aggressive. There's not many top teams that are sitting back. But I think it's quite interesting. If you go back to the, say, 70s and 80s, where you've got 
a much stricter offside rule. So if anyone's offside, even if they're not interfering with play, they're basically offside. So the defences can kind of swarm up very, very quickly. And on top of that, you've got a world where the strikers are not like really quick runners, big guys who thrive on crosses. So what do defences want to do? They want to keep them away from the box. So actually, if you go back to, I mean, even watch, what's a classic game from the late 80s? I suppose the Arsenal-Liverpool game when Arsenal win the title in the last minute, Michael Thomas goal. You look at the defensive lines there, they are very, very high. And the the famous Arsenal offside trap was in part because compared to now, it was easy to catch players offside. So there's been a few different areas, I would say. But yeah, compared to most of the Premier League, I think teams are playing higher up the pitch. The defenders, the modern defenders tend to be based more around speed, mobility uh, and recovery pace more than their aerial dominance or their natural defensive instincts I would say you're listening to the athletic football tactics podcast this episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra the official beer sponsor of the NBA want to get closer to the game than ever before Michelob Ultra courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear courtside seats to an NBA game and more head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more Before you get back to this Athletic podcast, did you know it's just one of many made by The Athletic every week? I'm Abby Patterson, senior producer here at The Athletic, and I get to work across so many of our shows. But even I have my favourites. Sometimes you're just too busy for a full-length podcast. I get it. We've all been there. Well, we've got a show to help you. Get up to speed with all the football stories you need to know about with our daily football briefing. It's done and dusted. Saudi Arabia will host the 2034 World Cup. Got a bug for the women's game? Then full-time Europe is for you. It's our dedicated women's football podcast answering the questions you're asking from the WSL and Champions League. So what's going wrong at Arsenal? But perhaps you want to know exactly how a team has set itself up. Then come to the audio whiteboard and join Michael Cox and our analytics gurus as they dissect and examine the game like nobody else can. That's on the Athletic Football Tactics podcast. I don't think I've ever seen a striker who reads the game so well. Just search The Athletic wherever you're listening to this podcast now and you'll find your next podcast obsession in no time at all. Now, let's get back to your show. So Mark, what now are the main benefits and functions of playing with a really high defensive line? I'd say condensing the space. I think that's the the main thing to almost play. Well, that's the idea, isn't it? To play in the opposition's half and make sure that there isn't, like I mentioned before, that you can't allow the opposition to get their head up and to be able to play that that ball in behind. Um, I mean, to Michael's point before as well, maybe it's not quite answering the question in terms of the how high are the defensive lines and why are they higher maybe compared to eras gone by. But I listened to something to something from John McKenzie at TIFO and he said it was quite interesting to to think that there's probably fewer mid blocks you think that either go high defensive line or deeper because if you have a mid block to a certain extent you're seeding space at both ends of the pitch rather than just one so I thought that was quite interesting to either go man for man and really squeeze the pitch or stay in a condensed compact block and um, and sort of force the opponent to go around you I think another benefit, yeah, to, to condense the space also then gives you, from an attacking perspective, the opportunity to win the ball back high. And we're seeing that more and more. Um, and the numbers interesting on this. I did a piece last week that included um, something similar, whereby there's a high of the possessions won in the attacking third that leads to shots this season. So it was 1.4 per game for, for both sides in 2018. 
19. It's 2.1 per game so far this season. Now that might not sound a lot, but across the course of a season, that is quite significant where teams are obviously realizing, especially in the age of the opposition building out from the back quite slowly and quite in quite a considered manner, that opponents are squeezing the pitch to identify if we win this ball back, then then we've got more of a chance to um, to go on and, and shoot and maybe score a goal. So there's, it's the the cost benefit ratio and working out which is which is best from an attacking perspective and a defensive perspective. Yeah, the out of possession stuff's become a big part, I think, of top teams and their identity. Liverpool, when they you know won won the Champions League, won the title, that was a, a huge part for them. I know that was in part counter attack as well. But even Ten Hag this season is, and I know he's not maybe the perfect uh, example with how United are performing quite hit and miss, but. He's spoken very openly about their regain numbers and being the best in the league at that in terms of the, the midfield and the final third. And there's, I think it's just a clear desire that teams now unanimously want to do that, albeit in, in slightly different ways. Uh, and I wonder if it even helps now in terms of the, the high line that you can play. Just by drawing offside, it's a really good way, I think, to just to frustrate the opposition because you're breaking up an organised possession sequence, I think. It was kind of like a win for Spurs every time it happened because Chelsea having the ball, they're organised, it's under their control. They know really they shouldn't lose it because they've got such an advantage. And every time it, you know, it goes wrong, it's like, okay, you've won that sequence. It's a chance to reset. You, know, you then get the choice, okay, we can kick for territory, we can kick short, we can build up how we want to. Um, it just gives you some control back in the game. And it's a great way I think teams will, will sort of try and use, I think will come on to some teams that do it well. But I think Villa are a great example of that, of how like when they're leading in games, can just really sort of jar opponents where you go oh, offside again offside again and you then you then know okay there's now at least a minute or so until we get the ball back and can try and attack again the the var introduction as well with offsides almost can be an advantage for the defending side because it's so kind of microscopic that i think that teams can certainly kind of back themselves a little bit more to be like if we do step up where previously the linesman might not have got it quite right we know that now it's going to get reviewed the game might be played on for a bit but we know that we can do it more and Liam mentioned the Liverpool title winning season. I think that was kind of, that was the, the first season that VAR was introduced. I think Virgil van Dijk really controlled that back line a lot to the extent that, of course, I've looked into the numbers on this. Liverpool had 142 offsides called in that season and the closest was West Ham with 99. So there was no other side that reached 100. And even accounting for the fact that Liverpool were going to be dominant in possession, that is an astounding amount. And I think that they did kind of back themselves to know while the, the play might go on, we know that it's going to get caught really specifically because of the VAR. And we can talk about the accuracies of VAR, but the, the point still remains that I think they, they realise that they could back themselves with this increase in technology. I think a lot more teams now have got keepers that can play a sweeper star role as well. Um, I know it's not, not a particularly new thing, but I think across the board, it's something that you can definitely see definitely down into sort of different divisions as well. Um, and that is a, a big part of it because, okay, you're then prepared to allow that ball in behind to allow possibly a one-on-one -on -one or a big chance. So as long as you've sort of got that profile, and I think Vicario was a great example in that game and, and John Muller's putting a, a good piece on site, you know, the sheer volume of defensive actions outside his box that he had, which is uh, how FB ref sort of categorised their, their sweeper-keeper stuff. But I had a look in some of the other games as well and, you know, he's currently top of the Premier League for sweeper-keeper actions. As you would expect, he had quite a few in the Chelsea game, but I think he had seven uh, and five in games against Fulham and Brentford this season as well. So it's clear now that he's a style keeper that we're, we're seeing a lot more of. And it's not just a case of, okay, for this sort of one game a season where this weird thing happens, it's going to happen an awful lot more. And, and you know, it clearly suits the, the style that Postacoglu wants to. I feel like one, th one thing I learned quite early on, data in football 101, Mark, I'm looking at you here to back me up, is that 
there is a correlation, I hope that's the right word, between uh, a really high defensive line and facing fewer shots. Obviously, that's taking out extremes where teams are doing it so badly that they're letting their opposition in. But I, I believe there is something of a correlation, which stands to reason. Uh, if you're really deep, then teams are going to be invited onto you into shoot into better shooting positions. Of course, then you have more defenders between the person taking the shot and the goal, and there are benefits to that. But also, if you're a team that really wants to uh, reduce the shots being taken by your opposition, then a, a high defensive line is an interesting approach. Of course, it, it does mean that the type of shots and the quality of shots that you do give up because there are fewer defenders, because they're often running backwards, one-on-ones, high-quality chances, that's the, the sort of trade-off there. What I'm interested in is, you know, given that, is it only worth playing an extremely high defensive line or an above-average defensive line in terms of its height as the dominant team in the division? I ask because there's two interesting cases this season in the Premier League, Bournemouth and Burnley, whose the depth of their defensive line is higher than average in the Premier League, and all the other teams above average are the top teams or the teams we recognize as the top teams. Is it foolish to play a high line if you are an underdog, a minnow broadly in the Premier League? Is there anything in that? Yeah, I'd be interested to see what the, the guys think of this. I think rather than it being maybe the minnow or the the style of play, I think it may be more to do with the personnel and the attributes of the key players. So maybe the centre-back controlling the defensive line, having a goalkeeper who's comfortable stepping out and performing sweeping actions rather than almost saying that, yeah, we are maybe inferior to to this team, therefore we should maybe sit in a, in a lower block. I think teams are becoming more brave for the reasons that I mentioned of maybe it being more lucrative to win the ball higher up. They're being more brave in going more man-to-man. But that is associated, and I think Burnley have sort of had this as well, it's associated with maybe being naive at times but it's actually saying well no we don't want the ball in our half never mind our own defensive third so it's it's proactively trying to obviously keep the ball anywhere near your own uh, third so it's it, it makes more sense pragmatically but I think overall I guess to answer your question I'd be interested to hear what the guys think is that I think it's more to do with the specific attributes of the players I think it's the quality of your press as well because if you're going to play such a high line you need to put pressure on the ball otherwise you're just inviting passes in behind so if you've got the the personnel um, and the world coach structure to press then yeah it, it sort of works but you wouldn't just sort of play a high line on, on its own for the sake of it really the reason why you're doing it is because you want to press high so as we were saying before you wouldn't have a deep defensive line because then there's going to be loads of space and it's easier to play through so um it then becomes high risk and high reward. And the problem is that people will see the moments where you do get caught out and you do get played through. So generally, it's a, it's a margins thing. I'm really interested in the way that it gets responded to and covered, Michael. I had the word naive in my head while Mark was talking. He used the word naive. It is the word that gets used often when a team like Bournemouth or Burnley are caught out playing a high line. I feel like it's the sort of thing that might be said on match of the day, for example, in analysis. It's naive for a team like this to be so aggressive and be be caught out so easily. But no one ever says it about the team that just ignores the issue completely, sits deep and concedes goals because their opposition are taking a lot of shots from 15 to 20 yards and one of them flies in the top corner. That's never naive, is it? I think that's a fair point to make, but I also think naive probably does apply more if you're talking about a team like Burnley who've been very successful in the championship and the kind of... The implication, I think, is that it's naive to think you can play that way in the Premier League. But I do understand what you're saying. Mm. It's it's one of those things in football where, again, I think there's a fear of making mistakes where you look silly. 
And I think that applies to lots of things in football. I think it applies, for example, to not having men on posts at corners. You know, if you if you can see the goal into the corner, you know, the corner of the net at a set piece, you haven't got a man on the post. Everyone says, well, that's a ridiculous thing to do. But no one will ever say the opposite if you've got men on the post and you can see the free header. Do you know what I mean? Like, there's I a, It's like goalkeepers yeah. diving to save a penalty or standing still. Exactly. It looks mm. really stupid if you stand still, it goes in it's the corner. Yeah. Bias, yeah. But how many penalties go down the or, middle? Or defend it. I mean, it doesn't really happen that much anymore, but defending purely is only at a corner and someone does have a free header. It looks, it look, it looks ridiculous, Space doesn't it? Space score goals. Yeah, but like, even if you have the best defensive record from corners in the league... I've never seen a Space score a goal. Yeah. <laughs> That means it must work pretty well. <laughs> but yeah, there's a lot of, I do think there's a lot of fear of just doing something that looks stupid when it goes wrong. And it goes back to what I said about Postacoglu. I think, you know, I, or it was actually when you mentioned baseball, like you've got to get into the mentality that, you know, probably people listening to this wondering what baseball is if you're not an English cricket fan. It's basically a, a very aggressive attacking form of cricket. And sometimes it looks ridiculous. If you get out just lobbing one up in the air and someone catches it, of course it looks crazy. But you've got to get into your head that you're going to look stupid. But overall, hopefully, it will be worthwhile. Trust the process. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think it's interesting. Perception being the, the key word there. I think you made a good point before, Ali, about the... It's almost like, how do you want to concede your XG from, from <laughs> yeah. taking the numbers? Do you want low volume shots but those shots being high quality which is i guess what you were saying before or a high volume of shots of which maybe they're low quality because we're going to get men between player and goal to be able to um yeah to block it and to make sure that they're of, of low quality so teams are always going to to concede shots but it's it's almost picking your poison as to how you want to to do that i also think comes back to a topic we've talked about before, how to survive in the Premier League, how to approach things if you're not one of the eight richest teams in the league and understanding that the points you're going to accrue are almost certainly going to come against the teams around you and therefore prioritising those matches and therefore by extension potentially trying to make concrete a style of play that is front foot and attacking so that when you are playing those teams, you want to be the team that has the high line, that's controlling the game out of possession, that's denying space, winning the ball high up the pitch, even if it comes at the risk of looking stupid and naive when you play against teams who are just better than you with really quick strikers who exploit it. Part three of the pod is is back to red cards, back to being down to 10 men or even nine men. How should you play? Of course, there are contextual and game state situations to this. Uh, we can't go through every possible scenario, but I'm interested to hear what the guys think because, Liam, it feels like this season we have seen a few high-profile uh, examples of, of a team, a top team in particular, going down to 10 and taking a pretty unusual approach. I think Liverpool intrigued me because when they've gone down to 10, they've gone to a 4-4-1 and sort of moved Salah up to be that outlet. And it works really well for them because they've got really fast forwards. So I think they started against, against Spurs with uh, Diaz, Nunez and Salah possibly as their sort of front three. So they kept you know, those transitional forwards in, in, in the second half before Diego Jota, I think he came on and then got sent off. Um, they were looking really good on the break because you know you can release Salah all day long. Similar to sort of how Spurs were really sort of hit Chelsea on the break a few times when you've got those players, um, you can be really dangerous. And for Spurs, it was a case of, I think... Um, even when they were down to down to nine, I think before they made subs, they had, I think it was Kulisevsky and Son as the, the front two. Mm. I could be wrong. And there were a few times where they actually did sort of get, you know, be able to to release them. And 
it then becomes a bit of a, a balancing act because as the attacking team, you know you've got an overload and you know that you can attack and push bodies forward. But if you've got two sort of transition outlets to defend, then you need to ensure that they're covered. And often managers will want, say, a, a plus one against them. So, okay, let's keep three back. And you know that if you lose it, you've got to you know defend that space. A topic like this, perhaps Michael gives us a chance to myth bust or be mythbuster adjacent uh, with a phrase that I hear a lot that always sounds very stupid to me, which is sometimes it's harder to play against 10 men. Well, I suppose it goes back to what um, Liam said earlier about, you know, Chelsea, for example, struggling to, to break down deep defences. I don't think teams in general like playing against that system. So I don't think it's ever harder to play overall against 10 players, but I think it can be harder to break them down because they generally, not Tottenham the other night, but they generally sit very deep. Um, I thought there was a really good example of this, probably the best example of this I've ever seen at the Women's World Cup in the summer. It was Nigeria against England, second round. England, strong favourites. Nigeria, the better side for 50, 60 minutes. Really finding a lot of spaces in behind England's wing backs, going in behind with speed. Then Lauren James gets sent off for a kind of off-the-ball incident. And England completely reshaped. They play 4-4-1, they play very deep. And Nigeria just didn't know how to take the initiative because they were built to play on the counter-attack and go in behind. And they didn't have the passing combinations to break England down. I think both managers acknowledged after the game, quite rare, that actually the thing that helped England was going down to 10. So in that situation, it was harder for Nigeria to break down 10 players. Of course, England weren't offering much of an attacking threat. So overall, of course, it's never more difficult to play against 10. But if you're not, if Ristadi doesn't like playing against a deep defence, that red card can mean you go from playing against the mid block or high block to a deep defence. So it can be difficult sometimes. But there was, I mean, after the Tottenham game, Cole Palmer was interviewed on Sky and went out of his way to say, yeah, by the way, it is easier to play against nine men. <laughs> so uh, I quite like that. Maybe there's a bell curve in the eyes of, of the, the footballers. It gets harder when it goes from 11 to 10. And then it's very, much easier when we go from 10 to 9. I wonder if that's a winger thing as well, though, because with, with the high line, I think we rarely seem to see a striker sort of get played through or played over up against sort of two centre-backs. But the one you tend to get is the winger running from out to in and behind. You, you know, you go through sort of all the, the top eight in the Premier League and they've all got one of those, at least if not two of those sort of type wingers um, that are really quick and... I think fullbacks can be the one, particularly if they're sort of the opposite side or the far side to where the ball is. So I'm talking about if it's a, a right back defending when the opposition right back's got the ball that, you know, they might be a bit square, they might not quite see the run. And then, you know, I think at times for a winger, it can be a bit more lucrative. Yeah, if your fullback is going to be a bit more I think square. that's fair. It's not even necessarily just running in behind, even just receiving the ball out wide on the touchline. One regular way of responding to going down to 10 men would be to try and be even more compact like a like a hedgehog sort of going mm. into itself and one of the things that you concede is coverage out wide in those areas so to your point Liam yeah interesting a wide forward or a winger it's like this is brilliant I'm getting not only am I getting probably more touches but I've got a bit more time when I receive the ball in some instances is there any data dare I ask Mark on the concept of uh, going down to 10 men being easier harder easier much easier we, yes basically i tried to to run some numbers myself and it was quite sort of tricky to do but uh, i dug into some interesting academic research and essentially yeah, it myth busts to say that it is of course easier when you're playing against a, a team with one or more um players down i think that the interesting thing which again all makes sense is that they largely 
converge on the conclusion that it's the interaction between multiple factors that actually influence the, the outcome after a red card. So you think about the game state at the time of the, the red card, the, the timing of the sending off itself, you know, with one minute to play versus 80 minutes to play, whatever it might be. Home advantage being a factor as well. Team strength of, you know, if you are far superior and you lose, you know, you lose a player, it might not affect you as much as if it was uh, the other way around. And the combination, the interaction of all of those factors as well. So um, there's no kind of specific hard and fast rule on it, but there was a, a lab in Spain who published a paper uh, last year. They analyzed 1,800... A lad in Spain? Lab. lab. A lab. A lab. Research lab in Spain. Um, 1,826 matches across the top five European leagues. Overall, basically found that each team's scoring rate changed significantly after ascending off, damaging the, the team who's penalized. The red card effect tended to fade over time when the affected team is stronger. So, I mean, we saw it with um, Liverpool against Bournemouth, for example, uh, this season that they, they lost uh, a man early on, uh, Alexis McAllister, if I recall, that it didn't really affect the way that Liverpool still tried to implement their style because they knew that ultimately they were far superior. So that kind of passes the eye test. Um, another study in 2020 looked at um, 2023 matches in the Champions League and Europa League um, converged on the same thing, basically found that receiving a red card for the home team lowers its probability of a victory by 19%. Um, interestingly, for the away side, had mixed effect. So it might be that it kind of galvanizes the side and they maybe do do the hedgehog effect almost to, to really just make sure they don't concede um, more. They sort of gave the example of they gave the example of Luis Suarez um, sort of handling the ball in the 2010 World Cup as well, where that was actually, that had a beneficial effect, obviously, because it was so late on in the game. Then Ghana missed the, the penalty uh, as a consequence and, and Uruguay went, went on to win um, on penalties themselves. So there's, there's almost a time and a place, kind of as you said at the start, Ali, where it actually might have a beneficial effect when you know and weigh up all of the, the probability that goes along with it. But overall, to conclude... Yes, it is better to have 11 players on the field than 10. On a slightly smaller sample size, there's some really interesting data actually comparing the um, Liverpool Spurs game uh, and the Spurs Chelsea game. Um, and this is taken from, from UPTA. So, including second half stoppage time, there were 16 more minutes of 11 against 9 in the Tottenham Chelsea game compared to the Tottenham Liverpool game. Tottenham had more shots in 29 minutes playing 11v9 um, against Liverpool than what Chelsea managed in 45 minutes. But when you look at the XG, um, Chelsea shots came up to almost three and all of them were in the penalty area, whereas Spurs against Liverpool, um, their shots amounted to less than one XG and five of them were from outside the box. Mm -hmm. And I think it was an interesting narrative at the time and Klopp said afterwards how proud he was of the team um, that, look, if Matip hasn't kicked that ball into his net in, in second half stoppage time, then, you know, it's, it's not as if Spurs were particularly fantastic. They didn't really break them down. They moved to the 5-3 when they had to, stocked up on another centre-back and, and a defensive midfielder um, and were really, really good. And I think part of me enjoyed watching the, the Spurs-Liverpool game more than I did the Spurs-Chelsea game because it, it just became a real sort of battle of um, styles because it was one team trying to do one thing specifically and another team going, we're just going to stop you. When you look at the data in that way, and again, the point is that for the philosophy and the way of playing, you might need to sort of do this. But um, yeah, that's quite, I think, a significant difference in terms of uh, the, the output you faced. So in conclusion, sometimes it's harder to play against 10 men if you're particularly uncomfortable playing against a team in a low block and don't understand how to 
unlock that load block. Um, I think we've all, and and this is, what do they call it, of the availability heuristic. We can all think of yeah. examples of teams going down to 10 men and, and, and doing very well. And, and, and that's always kind of fresh in the mind when you think of this. Well, it can be done. It, it can be very, very difficult. Um, but I think Mark has, uh, and, and those uh, Spanish lads have <laughs> <laughs> have given us the, the definitive answer. Um, look, clearly we understand that game state is important and there are specific contextual factors that change the way that you might approach things when going down to 10 men. So for the sake of the conversation, Michael, let's say the scores are level, nil-nil. So you're neither desperately defending a lead or desperately chasing an equaliser, but you have lost a player. What would you say are the, the key principles here? Well, I think you have to decide where you're going to concede space. You've obviously got one fewer player to, to occupy space. Most teams would decide we're going to give up space on the flanks because it's tough to cover the width and or you're going to concede space high up the pitch because it's very difficult to press. It's harder to press because if you play one against one across the pitch, you're going to get done at some point. So I guess that's the consideration you have to make. And of course, the unusual thing with Tottenham was that they decided to concede the space in behind. As we sort of mentioned earlier, teams generally tend to compact central spaces. Um, I think one of the things I've seen Liverpool do really well is by sort of switching to, to the 4-4-1 that you lose a player overall, but but realistically, I think the way that most modern coaches look at the game is that it's sort of a, a series of battles across the pitch of, you know, where they have superiority or they don't. Um, so different sort of 3v3s or 4v4s, and that can be um, looked horizontally or vertically, however you want to do it. Um, so a, a lot of the time, or what Liverpool have done by going to the 4-4-1 is you can keep, if you want a man mark in central midfield, you can still do that because you've got enough players there. You're just losing an extra body to sort of press. So if you're up against even a back two, it's a lot harder to press now because you've got one striker that's going to have to run sort of both ways across. Um, so most teams tend to pack the central areas of the pitch. It's why we've seen teams switch to a back five as well. So Sean Dyche did that with Everton away to Liverpool um, and, and worked for a bit, but I thought they gave up. Theirs was, I think, maybe a poor example of doing it because they were okay. They were decent enough in the first half. They had some good direct play and they played with a quite a nice sort of front two with Decore playing off Calvert-Lewin and they could pin Liverpool back and they made it difficult. But when they switched to the back five, they just sat off so much. And eventually, Luis Diaz just kept going on the outside because that's where all the space was because they had those three central midfielders in front that were doing so much work. Um, it was the only way they were really going to concede a goal or a chance. So, yeah, teams really want that central part of the pitch really blocked off. I think it's interesting as well that we almost associate it with being very ad hoc that, okay, we're down to 10 men. We need to adapt and maybe do something at the time. But... I think we underestimate just how much teams do prepare for this right and Liam you'll probably know more than me from your previous role but you know regularly in training coaches will say you know this is the scenario this is what's going on you're maybe a, a player down you're there's 10 minutes to go this is maybe how you respond as well so the idea that I mean going down to nine men was quite an extreme example but that may also be an example of this is how we, we play and how we train rather than maybe to our eye it's very impulsive it's very ad hoc as I say but teams do make sure that if that that scenario does occur then they know to either stay compact or to follow the the game plan you know irrespective of what's going on in the field interesting question about training time allocation would time spent uh drilling what we do if we go down to 10 men be, be better spent on set pieces for example which might be more regular and, and more valuable aspects of the game fascinating fascinating stuff uh, michael i mean to what extent does your basic shape, your formation matter in this discussion? 
more specifically playing a back four versus playing a, a back three, back five, as we see a lot these days? What are the different questions that you might have to answer playing a back three or a back four? This is a big generalization, and I don't know if it would be true if you did the numbers, but <laughs> I feel like teams that get playing 3-4-3 three, three and get a player sent off don't really know how to reshape. I can't completely explain why, but I think if you're playing 4-2-3-1, you end up just going two banks of four, and you've got a, a forward who's like a... He has to play half number 10, half number nine. has to kind of fend for himself. But with a 3-4-3, three, three, playing 3-4-2 three, just feels odd i think you get forced back into a back five obviously because you don't have that much of the ball the wide players are then having to cover the wide areas so you end up playing five four zero and there's no out ball so i think teams then often reshape they just go to a four four one as well and of course then you've often got like you know round pegs and square holes and it just doesn't feel right they're not used to playing that way so i think i i tend to think that you can if you're playing Four two three one. I think you can reshape quite easily. Three four three, which is almost they're almost the default two main systems now. I think it is a big difference. The best I've ever seen a team reshape. I realise this wasn't your question, but I'm going to say it anyway. A Milan derby in 2010. Into granted, they were already one 0 up. They're one 0 up, and they're playing a diamond and two up front. They get Wesley Schneider sent off, and you think, well, Mourinho is just going to go like park the bus play two banks of four but he keeps the two strikers on so he just plays four three two and they basically just don't play with the number 10 so obviously they have to play longer balls to the strikers who i think was probably milito and eto but the strikers play really wide they play more in the channels almost like wingers but stay high rather than playing as a front two and that forces the milan fullbacks to stay and then you end up with two strikers occupying four and then it wasn't really apparent that they had a man less and they ended up scoring another goal in the break they won 2-0 and then to make it even more fun Lucio got sent off in stoppage time so they ended up with nine men mm. uh, that's the best they they did have a goal advantage so they could play on the break but maybe not as much as you would have expected for a Mourinho team thank you for that I want you guys to all know if you have something to say particularly and ideally if it's relevant to the conversation, I want you to feel empowered to say it whether I've asked you directly or not. I really think that's uh, that's something we should strive for. Um, to what extent does the position of the player that's been sent off matter? By which I mean, if your striker gets sent off, my instinct is you don't necessarily always make a sub or you don't feel like you, ha you need to make a substitution. Whereas if your centre-back gets sent off, the other side you almost always would feel like you need to is that fair michael yeah and i think it's more likely to be a center back because they're making challenges and i think especially if we're talking about high defensive line i mean i thought a, a real problem for arsenal in the kind of later wenger years was that they played a very high line and then they'd often get a player sent off because the players are more likely to make a kind of last man foul and get sent off again a bit of a generalization but your striker shouldn't be getting sent off like what's he doing? What's he doing? Like it's part. It has to be quite a bad decision for your striker to get sent off. A defender, I think, can just get. It was the Van Dijk one against Newcastle where he hasn't done that much wrong. Yeah. Mm. It's, that's just part and parcel of trying to get the ball as a centre back, and he's gone off. So you can kind of forgive that. That's part of the. System. So you do more emergency stuff, don't you, around your own yeah. goal? Where you and it's again when we say about the action bias before, where 
rather than if you, okay you let the forward run through and then they score and you go oh well i didn't touch him because i was on a yellow card and they're like well i'd rather you get sent off something like it's i guess the panic of wanting to do something rather than doing nothing and, and yeah i agree on the strikers i think on the note of you know does it matter or to what extent does it matter i think in the modern game now with five substitutes you're always going to have the the players that you need on the bench anyway so i think you know spurs did adapt because they had to i think it was brennan johnson who maybe was sacrificed that um, I think, yeah, it's maybe less integral as maybe it would have been decades ago, per se. I understand that in the heat of the moment, getting substituted is, is broadly annoying for a player. But I do sometimes see players get subbed off because there's been a red card and clearly there needs to be a tactical change. Looking really like angry and sort of hard done by, which, which again, I, I broadly understand. But I also mm. think, come on, like it's got to be someone. Well, that's been a very enjoyable discussion, uh, just like it was when we took on dribbling uh, last week. And, and thanks to all who tweeted or commented on the Athletics uh, specific podcast page uh, with uh, kind feedback and apologies to David S., who said, interesting pod, but how can you have a 46-minute discussion about dribbling and a supposed dearth of exciting classical wingers and not mention Kvaratskhelia once? Fair enough. Kvaradona, very good dribbler. Hopefully we made up for it, David. If you're still with us, uh, it's always great to hear from you. Uh, we really, really love any audience interaction. So how about a call to action here? If you are uh, tactically minded or even better, if you're a, a coach, professional or otherwise, why not get in touch with us on this topic? How to deal with going down to 10 men. There's so many different aspects to it. Uh, and we always love hearing from you if you have things to add. Thanks to Michael, to Mark, to Liam for being with me in the studio for this one. It's been great fun. And thanks to you for listening. Make sure you're subscribed to this podcast feed and to The Athletic Head to theathletic.com forward slash tactics to sign up today with a discount on your annual subscription. And do join us next time, please, on the Athletic Football Tactics podcast. The Athletic.